Lord, we're grateful that we can gather as your people on this day in the Pentecost season and just begin once again to be reunited with Abraham and his family. I pray that as this word is brought forth this day, that you would take our minds and think through them, take my lips and speak through them, take our wills, bend them to yours, and take every single one of our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ, which is reality. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this is a love story. All 67 verses didn't necessarily feel like it, but it, it was a love story. And that's what, exactly what this is. And you might be thinking, where's our epistle? Where's our gospel reading? Time out. All right. In the Anglican tradition, it is not outside of our tradition to take a break from the epistle or the gospels. If I took you to St. Ebbs in England, if I took you down to the Diocese of Sydney in New Zealand, several of the Anglican provinces around the world never do the lectionary. Ever, you know. And so it's important for us to remember that Genesis is just as inspired scripture as the Gospel of John, right? And it's all good for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training for us in righteousness. So, and in this chapter, you can't break it up. You have to hear the whole narrative in order to get the whole scope of the picture. And I know you men are like, Gene, I got a tea time at noon, man. <laughs> Relax. Because this is about prerequisites to relationships, foundations for relationships, preparation for relationships, and the ultimate relationship. You could rephrase that. You could say prerequisites to marriage, the foundation of marriage, the preparation for marriage, and the ultimate marriage. So let's look at this. We're going to look at just, just bits and pieces of this this morning. And this is for everybody, by the way. It's not just for the married couples. It's for you widowers to encourage your peers. It's for the, the people yet to be married, our young people, so they can prepare. And it's for all marriages now to help us in our marriages as well. Because this truly is a love story. First, we see in this passage the prerequisites to marriage. A little backdrop. We've got to go back to where we left off. Sarah has now died in chapter 23. She's been buried in the cave a sad time for Abraham. She's been with him all these years. She was faithful to him, even though he threw her under the bus twice, you know, in Genesis 12 to 22. I mean, God bless Sarah. You know, she was wonderful. And she's gone home to be with the Lord. And so it's kind of a sad time. And, and we know that it was a sad time for Isaac. His mom had died and he's now 40 years old. And yes, he wants to be married. And so Abraham wants to get Isaac a son. And so the first thing that needs to happen here as a prerequisite is to have parental blessing, covenantal parental blessing. So he goes to his oldest servant. This is not a, 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 a green-eared, you know, this is, this is a seasoned servant of his. We don't know exactly who he is, but some scholars believe that perhaps this was Eliezer of Damascus. You remember, remember Eliezer? 
He said, Lord, I have no children and the only person in my family that's going to inherit all my stuff. And you told me you're going to number my family as the stars. The only one is Eliezer of Damascus, who's his servant in his household. So I wonder, maybe this is Eliezer. So I'm going to call him Eliezer. And if I'm wrong, eh. Um, <laughs> you know, God will forgive us for, for calling him Eliezer. It could be called worse things, I'm sure. All right. So the story begins with this ceremony. Put your hand under my thigh. For you, Eliezer, are a covenant child of God, a child of the circumcision. Put your hand under my thigh and swear to me, you will not take a woman from Canaan. You will go back home and find a wife for my son Isaac. And if you were in Eliezer's shoes, you would say, but Lord, what if, what if I fail? What if I can't find one there? And he said, you're free from the oath. If you can't find one, that's okay. But I want you to go find one for him, Eliezer. And so this is an ancient oath of people of the circumcision swearing it underneath his thigh. So he put his hand, he was bound by it, and he said, okay, I'm going to go. So notice what he loads up with. Ten camels, an entourage of people, plus gold and bracelets and wrists and all the stuff. He's bringing bounty, if you will, because Abraham's rich. So there's two thoughts for us all in the prerequisites of marriage. Number one, ladies and gentlemen, covenant people are to find covenant spouses. As far as it depends upon you. Now, I know several of you came to faith later on in life. Praise God! But you young people... I'm talking to you. Covenant people find covenant people. Just because they're charming. Just because they're good looking. Just because they have financial potential. Doesn't mean 30 years from now, he will still be the man of your dreams. Or the woman of your dreams. Because if you can't share the, the end of the question, what's the meaning of life? There's going to be problems. You'll wake up in the morning and say, hey, uh, let's go to church. Nah, I don't think so. There's things that we share in the covenant family of God that if you're unequally yoked, you can't share. And Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And that's Abraham's heart. He charges. You can't take one from these people, not because of their race, because of what they believe. Go back to my home, and we'll find that person there. That's the first thing we see. Second, we see that this whole thing is bathed in prayer. Look with me to verse 12. Eliezer is given this charge, so he gets all the bounty, he gets all the camels, and what's the first thing he does in verse 12? And he said, O oh Lord God of my master Abraham, Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. He prays. He bathes this thing in prayer. We don't know exactly how long the journey was, but my goodness, I'm sure he prayed every step of the way. This is a big task. 
And notice at the end of the book, at the end of the chapter, in verse 63, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field. Isaac, no, Eliezer is out there somewhere looking for a wife for him. He better be on his knees. Right? This whole venture from beginning to end is bathed in prayer. So dear friends, the prerequisites for relationships and marriage are one. Covenant people with covenant people bathed in prayer together. One of the reasons, I think it's in the sovereign work of God, that's why we're, con- we're devoting our summer to being a summer of prayer. Starting tomorrow morning, 7.30, noon, 5.30 in the afternoon, we're going to do morning, midday, and evening prayer. Just pouring our lives out to the Lord and asking the Lord to make us the people He's called us to be and the individuals and corporately the church He's called us to be. Just as they are praying that they would be the covenant people they've been called to be so they can be the husband and the wife they've been called to be. That's the first thing. Prerequisite for marriage. Covenant people. People of prayer. Parental blessing. Secondly, we see the foundation of marriage. Isn't it interesting that as Eliezer prays, he says, Oh Lord God of my master Abraham, verse 12, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master. It could also be translated loving kindness to my master. It's the Hebrew word hased, and it's all throughout this chapter. Hased blends all the other ideas of love into one word. And it's that unmerited favor of God. It's a love that's gentle and is always in action. It reaches out to the object of love. That's the protection that Abraham experienced as God reached out to him to serve others. This loving kindness is exemplified in the way Isaac received his bride-to-be. Scholars describe hased as that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of the other. The good Jew doesn't say what love is. They say, what does love do? That's hased. It's a quality that's expressed fundamentally in action rather than simply word or emotion. It's an attribute that puts the other person first. It's an interesting that in English, we have to put two words together to get just what hased means, and we say loving kindness. The Greek has four meanings of love, right? We know what they are. Agape, the unmerited love of God. There's phileo, which is the brotherly love, the friendship love. There's the eros. We get the word erotic. It's romantic, passionate, physical love. And then there's storge, which is the protective love, the love of a parent for their child, the mama lion, storge love. That's what that is. But what Hased does is it blends all of those. And it's expressed to the other person in words and in deeds. It's an action. And in the Old Testament, God continually reminds his people of his Hased to them. It's the waiting, overflowing love that the prodigal son knew when he returned home. 
and that the older son had forgotten and taken for granted. It's a loving kindness in the way that you speak to others. It's a loving kindness in the way you treat others. And so the foundation for marriage is found in Hased, in the way we act towards our spouse, the way we speak to our spouses. Doing and saying the right thing are not sufficient in and of themselves. Doing the right thing in the right way with the person's comfort in mind is critical. That's Hased for each and every one of us. And we have to will to do that, don't we? There's days you don't feel like it in marriage. But the reality is, God doesn't always feel like loving us in the way he has. And he has showed steadfast love to us, his people. Now, there's an elephant in the middle of the room in this story. Because you're Westerners. You know, I don't see any Indian descent people here, you know. This is an arranged marriage. They have never seen one another before. Right? And along with that comes all kinds of thoughts about the abuses that some arranged marriages have even today. You've heard horror stories of young girls being taken away, forced to marry outside of their will. This is not that. Notice, if you turn to the end of the chapter, verse 57, Eliezer, they said, well, give us 10 days. We'll prepare her, and then you can take her back. And Eliezer pleads with them, don't make my master wait. Please, don't. And what do they say? Verse 57, let us call the young woman and ask her. It's her choice. All right? And often in, in ancient Jewish culture, the woman had a choice. It might have been arranged by the father and the other father. But, you know, the village, you didn't go schlump your daughter off with some bozo. He had to be a good man. He had to be industrious. Yeah, he needed to be looking, because I want good-looking grandbabies. Every, every fleshly thing you could ever think of, they thought. Right? This is profound about Hased. You know, Ravi Zacharias' brother, in the 70s, they had emigrated to Toronto from India to, to, to start over because the opportunities were better there. But there were certain aspects of their culture which they kept even there as Indians now in Canada. And his brother is older than he is, and Robbie was starting to date girls and was kind of liking this Western dating scene, you know. But his brother looked to his parents, got his degree, and said, Now, Mom, Dad, I always wanted to do it our old way, so I'm old enough now. I've got some money in the bank. I'd like you to choose me my wife. And they looked at him and said, Really? You sure? He said, Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, we can do that. So they said, well, what type of girl do you want? So we told them everything from her, her education to her looks to everything that you could possibly, personality that you, you would want for a wife. And the dad said, well, why don't we just write 
my sister in Bombay, and she certainly knows many girls there. So they did. And all of a sudden came pouring in pictures and bios of potential brides-to-be. <laughs> Robbie said they really had a time, you know, <laughs> when they'd sit there and they'd pour through these things and his brother would say, Hey, Robbie, what do you think of this one? Isn't she lovely? Look at the description. She's even the church organist. As if the church organist, Robbie thought, was a requirement to be a wife, you know. But he narrowed the applicants to a short list, finally focused on one person and began to correspond to her. Then they advanced to telephone conversations. Now, this is the 1970s. We remember the 70s, most of us, right? Long-distance phone calls from Toronto to Bombay. Can you imagine the cost? So they didn't talk for long. They didn't have many of them. They had a few because they were so expensive. And one could tell, Ravi said, that reality was really closing in here. Finally, believe it or not, they felt that this was both it. The dates were set for the engagement and the marriage without these two ever having met. So his brother and father flew from Toronto to Bombay. More than 1,000 wedding invitations, can you imagine, were set out. Two days after his arrival was the engagement date, and a day after that was the wedding. That's Indian culture. He would then bring his bride back to Toronto to live happily ever after. You can feel the tension, can't you? We're like, no way, not me, right? So Ravi, being more Western like us, says, this is real faith, if not lunacy, you know? <laughs> so he began to get concerned, and right before his brother left for Bombay to hop on the flight, he mustered enough courage to caution him. He said, I don't want to challenge what you're doing, but I have a brief question. What are you going to do if you go down the jetway and you see this woman there with a garland in her hair and you say, oh my God, I hope that's not her. <laughs> or worse, what if she looks at you and says, oh, I hope that's his brother. <laughs> what are you going to do? Are you going to take her aside, talk for a few moments and say, you know, we've met, we'll not be proceeding with our plans? You're going to write all 1,000 people and say, we've called it off? His brother had just stared at him while he spoke and said, are you through? Yeah, what are you going to do? He said, I want you to write this down and don't you ever forget it. Love is so much of the question of the will as it is of emotion. And if you will to love somebody, you can that's Eastern thought. And that is what Hasid is. God loved us when he didn't feel like it all the way to the cross. We in marriage, the foundation of marriage, is this loving kindness to one another. Deep. 
And it's not surprising that the Bible describes that Rebecca comforted Isaac in the early days of their marriage on the loss of his mother. Kindness is a rare expression, but it's priceless if the marriage is going to be preserved. Loving kindness is the touch, the look, the beat of a heart, and the act that seeks to cherish and guard the one to whom you say, I love you. The commitment of the will and the kindness are components that blend this loving mix, making a house a home and a haven of precious memories. That's the foundation you have to have in Christ, Hased. Next, there has to be proper preparation. So we have parental blessing, we have prayer, we have Hased, and then we have preparation. Go back to the end of the chapter in verse 58. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And Junie read it beautifully. I will go. Do you think she came to that point without thinking about this? You know, she's anywhere between the age of 16 to her mid-20s probably. A young ancient woman was preparing to be a wife and a mother. And she had prepared. And Isaac is now 40. He's really prepared. <laughs> but this kind of decision cannot be made at the spur of the moment. It must be prayed through. It must become part of the character of the individual. So when the decision for marriage is finally made, the prerequisites of the demands of the soul to be sensitive to the mind of God have already been met. And you do such preparation individually, communally in the church, as you walk through the process. You know, you learn what it means to fight, to disagree in love without being mean-spirited. Because every marriage has disagreements, right? Nod your heads, people. We all have disagreements. You know, it's not just me. And you learn to just live day by day walking with the Lord. With all the prerequisites, with all the foundations, preparing yourself for the one day waiting for that right person. And joining the Lord right now in the present, no matter what you're going through in your life. Reminds me of a true story from World War II from England. Uh, it's the true story of a, a young woman named, young man named George who was in love with a beautiful young girl named Mary. They were passionately in love. But World War II broke out. He was called away to serve in the army. Recognizing that this could mean death for him, he decided to hold off the wedding until he returned. So George pleaded with her, Mary, please, Wait for me. After the war is over, I'll come home and we'll be married. And she agreed. So, many weeks and months went by. George's letters kept coming and coming and coming. And every letter that came, her heart would aglow. But suddenly the letter stopped. One week, two weeks, three weeks. Four weeks, there were no more letters. 
finally the communication came to George's family and they passed it on to Mary's that he was missing in action and presumed to be dead. Mary's heart was broken. She could not believe that this man whom she really loved was gone. And she didn't know what to do. As hard as she tried to put her loss behind her and go forward, she just couldn't go day by day without getting George out of her mind and out of her heart. After several months, she turned home from work one evening and said to her mother, Mom, I'm not feeling very well. I'm going to go upstairs. Please don't disturb me for anybody. She closed her door, opened up her dresser, and pulled out every letter that he wrote to her. Sat on the bed and just read them and sobbed. She pulled his, his picture off her dresser and he was so handsome in his uniform. Good looking man. And lying down on her bed, she just read them one by one as her tears flowed. For the first time since the news of his loss, she took out her wedding dress that she had bought before George had left. And she put it on, stood in front of the mirror with her picture and a letter in her hand, just sobbing. A knock comes to the door. Mother opens up the door. George! What are you doing here? He says, Mom, is, is Mary here? Yes, George, but you're supposed to be dead. And he said, well, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> May I see her? She said, absolutely. But first, let me ask you, is she married? No, George. So he walks upstairs. He steps aside and... As you know, some of those old English homes, the, the keyhole is as big as a softball. So he peeks to the door to see his beloved Mary, and he sees her there in her wedding dress with his picture and a letter. He gently opens the door and says, Mary. She turns to him in, in a state of shock. And then just screams at the top of her lungs, Georgie! And just runs to him and grabs him and she won't let him go. And she wraps her arms around him and, and he, he has to pry her arms off. And he reaches to his pocket and he pulls out an old dog-eared letter. He's had it for years in combat. He says, Mary, of all the letters that you wrote to me, this is the most precious one. And it says, Georgie, my dear, I love you, I love you, I love you. And when you come home, I'll be ready. And darling, I'm home, but I didn't think you'd be this ready. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's a true story. It's great. My friends, if you're yet to be married, you just need to walk with the Lord and be ready. And let that spouse come to you. And some people are called to singleness. And that's not a lesser calling, by the way. Paul would never have been to accomplish what he accomplished if he were married. But for those who are called to be married, just walk with the Lord.
grow in Him, be prepared. Because there's one day where we'll see an ultimate marriage. And that's the day when our Lord returns, when every eye will see Him. Even the scripture writers find words inadequate to describe that moment. Jesus himself told his disciples that if they were not able to understand their earthly things, how would they understand spiritual things? And we talk of streets of gold, pearly gates, angels, etc. And I'm not sure we understand the grandness of it all when he calls us in Christ the bride of Christ. Let us ask God to give us that glorious glimpse of his second coming, for he is the bridegroom, and those who are in Jesus Christ are his bride. You see, every single marriage in the kingdom of God is a reflection of the true love of God has for us. And Jesus dying upon the cross for us. Our marriages and the hased that husband and wife have for one another is a reflection of that. The only Bible our neighbors see where we live, work, and play is our lives. The way we talk about our spouse. Does it reflect that loving kindness? Does it it speak of an adoring love for one another? Because one day, we'll be reunited And I'll get my new knee. And it'll be glorious for eternity. In closing, the meeting of Isaac and Rebecca is one of storied beauty. She was bedecked at this point as she's traveling back with all this gold adorned. She's a beautiful bride. And the Bible said she was beautiful. Did you catch that? You know, in modern young people language, she's a hottie. All right? No, she's stunning. And this afforded her ample time to meditate over Eliezer's words to her about her husband-to-be. And if Isaac was merely walking the field, as some suggest, he also had ample time to ponder and prepare if this mission was going to work for the sure return of his servant and his future bride. Apparently, Isaac and Rebekah saw each other. Though they could only recognize one another as they were identified, but when she knew it was him, she donned her wedding veil, signifying that she was his. The marriage was immediate, verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved, he adored her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. See, Rebekah replaced Sarah as the new matriarch of Israel. And he loved her as the first reference of marital love in the entire Bible. They had married in the Lord and they were one flesh. And because they were the foundation of parental blessing, prayerfulness, loving kindness, reaching out to one another with acts of kindness, they had prepared well. They were now wed. This story and all of Scripture teaches us that all our lives are not ruled by chance or fate, but by our sovereign, loving God. 
God is always faithful to His children, dear friends. Always. Our challenge is to be faithful to Him out of response for His love for us. God does not help those who help themselves. He helps those who entrust themselves completely to Him as Abraham did, as Eliezer did, as Rebecca did, and as Isaac did. Georg Newmark in 1640 was a hymn writer. And I conclude with these words. Sing, pray, and keep his ways unswerving. Perform thy duties faithfully. And trust his word, though undeserving. Thou yet shalt find it true for thee. God never yet forsook in need the soul that trusted him indeed. Let us pray. Lord, thank you. For this wonderful love story, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives and in our families and marriages. We pray for all our marriages. We pray, Lord, that our relationships would be a true object lesson for our neighbors of your love for us. Marked with the loving kindness from above. We pray especially for our young people who aren't in that phase of life yet. We pray that you would just continue to make them faithful to you as they walk day by day with you. We pray for our widowers, that you would encourage them in you, O Lord. We pray for our singles, that as they recognize your loving kindness, that they wouldn't find their identity in marriage, but rather a love for you in Jesus Christ. For God never yet forsook in need the soul that trusted him indeed. May that define us, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.